Amen. Only God has the word of eternal life, and so we turn to that now in our text today from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Our sermon today is from continuing the book of 1 Peter. We are now into chapter 4. We're going through verses 1 through 6. Peter writes for us, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This, brothers and sisters, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Since God alone has the word of eternal life, and only by His Word can we live, we need to pray that He would make this alive in our hearts. So let's pray together. God, these words are true. They are Your words. And they are words that give life. And we long for more of that life. So I pray, God, now that as we move from just hearing Your Word recited to explaining and exhorting from Your Word, I pray that your spirit would be just as present to give life through my words, that only my words would, that my words would only illuminate yours, bring to life yours, explain yours, and help us lean on your words even more. Bless us by your spirit now that we would know more of Christ. It's in his name that we depend. Amen. Do you remember those uh, What Would Jesus Do bracelets, the WWJD? It was kind of a, a constant reminder as you wear the things around to always be thinking about how Jesus might live, how, how he might act in a certain situation. And it's a pretty helpful way to deny your own impulses, to remember to ignore your own impulses and try to think of a more Christ-like way to respond in a situation. Unfortunately, though well-intentioned, the idea of trying to think of what Jesus would do is often too subjective. It's too speculative. Without a solid understanding and enlightenment of who Christ is, we can justify just about any behavior and say, well, we think Christ might do that. It's kind of like what I see today, everyone arguing over how to love your neighbor What's the best way to love your neighbor? Not that way. Well, it's better this way without realizing that the Bible actually tells us what it means to love your neighbor. So before we can ask, what would Jesus do? We need to ask, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus accomplish and model for us in his life that inspires us how we ought to live today? In a similar way, Peter, throughout his entire letter, has been telling us how to live based on the model of Christ. 
From the beginning of his letter, Peter hasn't just been giving us instructions on theology and, and life, but he's reshaping how we see ourselves in this world. He's been giving us a new identity as exiles living in Babylon, awaiting our return to the promised land. The way that you change your behavior in this world isn't just by following a list of rules, but by seeing the world through a different perspective. Having your mind reshaped to think differently about every situation. So Peter's mindset, Peter says this mindset that we should have is the same one that Christ has. And we gain that mindset by looking to Him over and over as we deny ourselves and say, make me like you, Jesus. Sanctification isn't an exercise of looking at a list of rules and and applications and trying to find your way to implement new behaviors. It's just looking at Jesus over and over and over until eventually we begin to see the world and live like He did. And so Peter's call to us today is to arm yourselves for this exile, thinking like Christ. You will be more prepared to share the gospel, to defend the faith, to endure through trials, to to deny temptation and distractions by thinking more and more about the work and example of Jesus. If you want to do what Jesus do, you need to know what Jesus did. We must arm ourselves for exile, thinking like Christ. And when we have this way of thinking, it then will determine which paths we take in our lives. And so our outline today, unfolding two verses at a time, is showing us the different ways that we are to follow, which different paths we are to take in life. In verses 1 to 2, as we think like Christ, we see that we are on the way of righteousness. And while we're on the way of righteousness, we'll also see ourselves in verses 3 and 4 on the way of exile. And as exiles in this world, verses 5 and 6 show us that this way is also the way of the gospel. Remember that the reason Peter's writing is to try to give people hope to endure through suffering. He's giving them reasons to endure trials, but more than that, he's not just giving them a way to survive, but he's giving them a calling to engage in the the world in the midst of the suffering. We're not just holding up, waiting for Jesus to come and rescue us and take us away, but we are his tools to bring hope now into the despair, to bring light today into the darkness. This is the way of righteousness. This is the way of an exile. It's the way of the gospel. Thinking like Christ allows us to walk this narrow path between the ditches of compromise with the world on one side and isolation from the world on the other. This is what Peter's calling us today to today. So let's go back to verses 1 and 2 and begin walking with Christ on the way of righteousness. Peter writes again, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The main idea, as you can see, comes from this very first verse. But Peter begins it with a therefore, telling us that what he's commanding us, what he's encouraging us and teaching us 
is based on what he said previously. It's a result of the truth that he just explained. And so we remember what Jake preached last week, the emphasis being the gospel, as it is and should be every single week. Verse 18 told us, Christ also suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is the core of our identity in Christ. It's it's what shapes our lives. It gives us lenses to see the world from a whole new perspective. This is the truth we want to live by every single day. Christ died to make us sinners live righteously. We too are dead in our flesh, but alive now in the Spirit. And Peter used the example of Noah to make a really important point to us. Christ's death and resurrection accomplishes for us a brand new life, just as dramatic as what happened in Noah's flood. That the whole creation was destroyed in that judgment. And Noah, by God's mercy, was made alive to live for God in a brand new creation. In the same way, when we are met with the flood of Christ's love for us in His suffering on the cross, we die to our old selves and rise to new life. The old sinner dead beneath the same flood of judgment. But we live by His mercy in righteousness. We're dead. We were dead in sin. We just floated along with the culture. And Christ had to pay for the flood of judgment that we deserved. He had to suffer to bring an end to that life. Either you face the flood of God's judgment in your own sin, or you put it upon Christ and He faces it for you. Suffering was necessary to rid us of our sin. Oftentimes when we think about the Gospel, we like to just dwell on all the good parts, the forgiveness, the reconciliation, the peace with God, the second chances, the joy forever in heaven. But the Gospel reminds us not only what we were saved for, but what we're saved from. We were dead in sin, enslaved to sin, trapped in it. God's wrath hovered over us like a boot over a cockroach, ready to destroy it in its uncleanness. But on the cross, Jesus took that stomping so that if you trust Him, you can walk free as though you were never unclean in the first place. In a great exchange, your sin crushed on the cross so you can walk on this way of righteousness. Suffering was necessary because of your sin. But what does that have to do with our suffering today? Peter's giving us a choice. Every time you face suffering in your life, every time there's something that doesn't go your way or difficulty comes into your life, you are being presented with a choice. You stand at a fork in the road. You can choose the way of the world and try to relieve all your discomfort the way the world does. Or you can turn down the way of righteousness. When you suffer, there's this great temptation to try to relieve yourself of that suffering. And the world's got so many answers for that. It looks a little easier, a little more doable. If you go that way, perhaps it'll lessen the pain and give you some rest. And you look down the way of righteousness and you wonder, is following Jesus really worth all that trouble? 
But Peter's giving us a choice and encouraging us to make the right choice. He's telling us there's no such thing as being a Christian and avoiding suffering. There's, this is the way of righteousness. Suffering was necessary to save you. That's what Peter means by saying that the person who has suffered has ceased from sin. It's not to suggest that you can become perfectly sinless in this life. Or that, like some throughout church history, have tried to beat themselves in order to become more holy, make themselves suffer. It doesn't work that way. Peter's saying, in Christ, your old life is gone. You died. If you put your faith in Christ, this is the path He's put you on. And verse 2 explains that you've been put on a path to live the rest of your life for the will of God. The old life, dead in the flood of judgment, represented by your baptism. When you were baptized, you agreed that you are dead. You died. That's judged. It's over. You're a new person who lives on the way of righteousness. Christ showed us in His life that in this world, the way of righteousness is the way of suffering. When Jesus lived in this world displaying His righteousness, He constantly faced people who hated Him, who rejected Him, and in the end, all of even His closest friends betrayed Him. It cost Him His life. And we are to follow the same path. It's a difficult path. Because God doesn't just use suffering to save you in the beginning. He uses suffering to save you throughout your life. To take away more of that rotting flesh that still clings to you and stinks up your life. Peter wants you to make the right choice. Though it looks difficult, though this life of righteousness might be full of suffering, give up sin, follow Christ, and endure. There's no middle ground that gets the comforts of this world and the next one. There's no third option where you get Jesus and an easy life. The way of righteousness is the way of suffering. Christ knew this. He embraced this path. And He accomplished salvation for His people. And when we arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, we embrace the path. And we do what we can to save His people and bring us, bring them home with us. Now, verses 3 and 4 then clarify for us the context, the location of where this path runs. The way of righteousness is also the way of an exile. It's a path that runs right through the heart of that ancient pagan city called Babylon. So let's go back to Peter's letter. Verses 3 and 4. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality. Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. So, As we try to walk this narrow way, there's these two ditches that we tend to fall into. On the one side, it's compromise, giving in, just becoming much like the world, the culture. Or, on the other side, there's isolating yourself completely from the world. Trying to avoid sin by avoiding other sinners. But Peter has given us this identity as exiles. We live right in the city, but we strive while we are in the city to remain faithful to our homeland, to our king. 
And this balance is really difficult. The imagery that Peter has in mind, as we've explained throughout this, is that of Israel, who has escaped Egypt through the Exodus. And they're trying to maintain their identity through this ongoing Passover feast. And, and then finally, the imagery of the exile in Babylon. Remember that after generations and generations of unfaithfulness, at the end of Second Kings, Babylon comes to Jerusalem, destroys the city, and takes the people to move hundreds of miles away to the city of Babylon where they are now to become Babylonians. They're to live like the Babylonians, embrace the customs, and accept their lifestyle. But the prophets continue to tell us how the Jews responded in this Babylonian exile. Some Jews fought back. They refused to go quietly. I will not obey Babylon. I'll fight for my brothers to the death. Threatening the very existence of Israel. Others gave in. They just saw all of this suffering as God's abandonment. God abandoning them, so they just adopted the Babylonian way of life and thought we might as well get some joy out of life. Also threatening the existence of Israel. But Jeremiah offered a better way. Jeremiah 29 tells the Tells them to go and live there in peace. Build houses, plant gardens, get married, have babies, seek the welfare of the city. He's telling them what Peter's been telling us this whole time. Live as peaceful citizens of Babylon. Be careful not to let anyone look at your life and make make them think that you too are a Babylonian. Don't give them the impression you're just like everyone else. And so Peter tells us that being a Christian isn't embracing what the world does, but it's also not fighting them at every moment. It's living both a peaceful and a subversive life. Not revolting, but not going along with everything. We see this exemplified in Daniel and his three friends, right? When they were in Babylon. They tried to work with the leadership and be a blessing, So that the Jews could flourish in the city alongside of the Babylonians. But when they were commanded to worship differently, when they're commanded to eat the different foods or pray to other gods, then they refused. And they were willing to go to the death for it. They would not compromise their core identity simply to get along in society, to get along with their neighbors. This is what Peter's got in mind throughout his letter and here as he explains these sins in verses 3 and 4. The world just gives in to these inordinate desires. That's what living in sensuality means. All of these things listed in verse 3 are natural human desires and impulses that could be good. They're given to us by God. Sex, eating, drinking, worship. We were made for these things. But living in sensuality means that these good desires have gone haywire. Human passions, unchecked by God's Spirit, not guided by God's Word. They've become perverted, twisted, abused. So we hear people now say that, well, I was born this way. Or God made me this way. And in a little sense, they're right. God did give them the basic part of these desires, and but... They were meant to be guided by His truth, guided by His Spirit. Everyone apart from Christ lives with these inordinate desires, passions, 
uncontrolled by God's Spirit and His Word. But to keep us then from swinging to the opposite ditch and just seeing them as a bunch of disgusting sinners, avoiding contact with them, Peter says this interesting thing. He says, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. What is that all about? Well, he's saying that before you were in Christ, you lived this same way. Your sins may not have been unleashed to their full extent, but you too were a glad citizen of Babylon one time. That life is past. That life is done. If you are in Christ, you've been brought out of the city and put on the path of an exile. And if you were brought out of Babylon to live in exile, that means others can be brought out too. The reason we don't separate completely from the world, but stay in the world, is so that the citizens of the world can watch how we live and see there's a better kingdom filled with hope, with a better end, with lasting satisfaction. We can invite them to switch allegiances and join us in the kingdom of Christ, just as someone invited us. We live in this world in such a way that they watch us and they see that we walk on the path of righteousness and maybe a few of them will be intrigued enough to want to join us. Your task in this world, in this city of Babylon as an exile, is to live in a way that will challenge the world and invite them to come out of Babylon. And this Exile identity is what prepares us for the inevitable rejection that's to come. The vast majority of the watching world is not going to be interested in what we are doing. Peter says in verse 4 that they're surprised when we do not join them. And why are they surprised? Because they're spiritually dead. They're just floating downstream in the current of the world in their flood of debauchery. It's just a massive flow of water going down. And your endurance through suffering is evidence that you are fighting as hard as you can against the current to go the opposite direction. And they're surprised that you would exert so much effort to do what nobody else is doing. But this is the way of the exile. This is how Christ Himself lived. He was in exile. His home is in heaven, and yet He came here to live in this world, a place that's not His home, representing His home in His righteousness and making a way for others to follow Him back home. He went about His mission with focused purpose, unconcerned about what everyone else thought about Him. He challenged authorities when necessary, when they tried to get Him to get off of His path. That he also maintained a posture of peacemaker. He walked that narrow path, trusting God to vindicate him, but yet accomplishing his purpose to bring many back into his heavenly home. And now this is to be our identity as the church in this world. We do everything we can to band together, take care of each other, represent his righteousness here on earth as his ambassadors. And how do we do that? We worship together. We share communion. We do Bible studies. We invite people into our homes. We forgive one another and reconcile our differences. Sometimes, occasionally, we need to stand up and tell the world we will not go that far. We, we cannot obey that. We must stay faithful to Christ and what He's called us to. We walk that narrow path 
by wisdom from his spirit, trusting God to vindicate us while along the way calling as many as we can to come along with us on the path to his heavenly home. Most of the world is going to look at us like we are weird. But some, a few by God's grace, are going to join us. They're going to be intrigued by the hope that is within us and armed with the thinking of Christ, we are eager to tell them the way of the exile by the good news entrusted to us. Because we are armed with the gospel. So we see that we're not just trying to survive as exiles, but we are on a mission in this city to rescue as many as will come. When you have the same thinking of Christ, you see that the way of righteousness, the way of an exile, is the way of the gospel. See what I mean in verses 5 and 6. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. And when we walk this fine line between compromise with the world and isolation while we're on the path of exile, we don't see the world as our playground where we get to do whatever we want, but we also don't see that as a plague to avoid. We don't walk with them just like we're the same as everybody else, but we don't cast them off as hopeless. In the midst of difficulty, it's really easy to see others as enemies. They disagree. They're just giving in to these inordinate desires, living in sensuality. They deserve the judgment that's to come. So when you read the promise in verse 5 that God is ready to judge the living and the dead, you rejoice that the day of reckoning is coming. Which, in a sense, is good. God is just. He is bringing justice. You will be vindicated. But sometimes, if we fall into the ditch, we get a little too zealous in that direction. You see in verse 4 that they're caught up in a flood of debauchery, and you can't wait for their flood of debauchery to be caught up in God's flood of judgment. But Peter doesn't won't let us think that way. He says, remember that we're to arm ourselves with the same thinking as Jesus. So in verse 6, he says, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Why? So that they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Those who are still citizens of Babylon are spiritually dead in their sin. They're just floating downstream in the cultural current. That's the reason they mock you and revile you and laugh at you and ignore you because they don't see Christ the way you do. They don't get to experience the love and the fellowship of the saints like we do. And what's the remedy for that? How do they come alive? Through the gospel. Not simply pointing out what they do wrong and telling them this is the right way to do it. But the gospel is the only thing that can make those who are dead to live by the Spirit. Jesus' death and resurrection is the only way to help our neighbor escape the sad safety and comforts of Babylon. Jesus' blood and righteousness is the only way your coworker can find a greater purpose than in career success and in a happy family. The way of the gospel sees that thinking like Christ means that living in the world, we live in the world in a way that doesn't compromise who we are, but engages the world unafraid of their mockery, unaffected by their eye rolls, 
eager to show them that the way of Jesus is better. And by God's grace, some will join us. So I pray that Redemption City Church would faithfully walk this way of righteousness, the way of an exile, the way of the gospel, armed with thinking like Christ. This is the identity that our church must have. When you're talking about the purpose of a church, what are we, what are we to be all about? It's common to ask the question, are we going to be about more about evangelism or discipleship? Are we going to be outward focused or inward focused? How do we balance these things? Well, thinking as an exile helps us do both. We devote, on one hand, our allegiance to Christ and His kingdom people. We band together. We take care of each other. We refuse to compromise with the world. We must be known as a people who together love Jesus with all our heart, soul, and strength. And we love one another with that same love. And what does He say marks us out as His ambassadors, as His kingdom people? We're people who gather together regularly to worship Him and celebrate His goodness to us. We hear His Word preached to us and we respond in song and praise. We feast together at communion and invite one another into our homes as an extension of that fellowship. We walk together as Jesus did with His disciples personally teaching and equipping each other with the Word of God so that we will all be equipped for every good work. That's what it means to be a church. This is our identity as exiles in a foreign land. And then when we equip each other, we can't forget that we must send one another back into the world, into our jobs, into foreign missions, into schools, marketplaces, playgrounds, finding anyone who will listen to us for the reason, for the hope that is in us. We don't go into the world to become like them, to compete with them in their games, and to battle with them for fame and control. We go into their world for their good, to invite them to a better place, to a kingdom that will last forever, to a better hope in Christ. We go because we too were once citizens of this world. And someone invited us to walk with them on this path to the heavenly city. As you think about this new identity, maybe some of you need to take a moment to repent for falling off the path. You weren't armed with Christ's thinking. You got distraction. You distracted. You took your eyes off of Jesus and you tripped up and fell into one of these ditches. For some of you, that means you've embraced the culture too much. You've pursued your identity in a successful life in this world. You've let the world around you dictate your identity, your purpose, what, how you spend your day. You need to shift your focus back onto Jesus and His mission to build the church. Arm yourself with Christ's thinking that the world is not our home. We're just passing through. Others have fallen off on the other side of the road. You don't engage the world much at all. Your fear causes you to pull back and stay in the confines of the safety of the ark. You've built up your theology. You like to just, just protect yourself and stay away from the sinful influences of the world, ignoring the calls of the dying people outside. You too need to shift your focus back on Christ and His mission to build the church. Arm yourself with Christ's thinking that He came into this world to rescue the perishing and care for the dying. Most of us will be tempted to 
fall one of these two directions. But when we stick together and stop fighting over who's doing better or who's more dangerous, we hold on to each other. We keep each other from falling. We make sure that we will faithfully arrive at home and on the way we will get to bring many along with us. Redemption City Church, let's embrace this identity as righteous exiles made new by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Arm yourself with this same way of thinking that the gospel is preached to those like us who were dead so that we might live in the Spirit the way God does. Let's pray. God, this is so difficult to maintain this balance. We need more of Your Spirit to illuminate our eyes to who Christ is, to make our hearts able to live like Him, to see the world around us as a mission field, not a place to go and receive our greatest pleasure, but knowing that our greatest pleasure is awaiting us in the kingdom that is being revealed in Christ by His Spirit through His people. God, would you help us be faithful to band together, faithfully holding on to this identity as Christ's ambassadors, representing his righteousness in the world, no matter what mockery, slander, or suffering comes our way. And we trust that we will stay faithful, not because we are good, but because Christ is good for us, and he lives through us, and he intercedes for us. So it's in His name we cast all of our cares to endure. Amen.